Good morning. My name is David, and I am an assisting priest here at Incarnation Anglican Church. Uh, this morning, I want to give you a little heads up that my voice has gone in and out over the past few weeks. So if it gives out midway through my sermon and you would like a refund, please speak with Amy or Katie after the service. <laughs> Today, we encounter one of the most challenging portions of 1 Timothy, in which Paul instructs Timothy to have the slaves obey their masters. And it's challenging, as these things sometimes go, not because it isn't clear, but because it's pretty darn clear what Paul is teaching. Um, but with the right spirit and with the right tools, we can discern in 1 Timothy 6 not only a principle that undermines the institution of slavery, but also a deeper insight into the way the kingdom of God works. First, uh, note how the reigning culture of honor and shame continues to inform Paul's instructions in the letter, which I made reference to in my last homily on chapter 2. Uh, Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in the teaching may not be blasphemed. These words reflect basic assumptions about how a Roman household works. Since Paul's concern in 1 Timothy is how the household of faith should conduct itself, it's worth reviewing this most basic aspect of life in antiquity. We're here dealing with what's known as the patron-client system. It's a sort of household pyramid with the, the father of the family, the Latin, the pater familias, at the top. Uh, maybe some of you have seen the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, where that term is used quite effectively, um, where an escaped convict tries to journey to reunite himself with his wife, only to find she's being courted by other men and, um, and is already planning to move on. When he confronts her about this, he says, I'm the darn paterfamilias. You can't marry him. So, that's a reference to this system. It was predicated on the mutual obligations between patron and client. The patron bestows some kind of benefit on the client, and in return, the client owes honor and obedient service. Probably the best modern example of this system would be something like The Godfather, where the mafia boss offers protection or other benefits to his clients, and in return, those under him owe respect and must do whatever The Godfather asks of them. This arrangement governed the core relationships in a household and society at large, between men and women, parents and children, masters and slaves. At the level of the city, the heads of the wealthiest families were expected to be generous in hosting civic festivals, and in return, the citizens of the city owed the deepest respect and honor to the city's patrons. Disrespect and dishonor or shame was considered among the most intolerable wrongs in society. In some ways, it was the worst. Yes, crimes like murder might be bad, but they don't undermine the fundamental social order. The appeal of the Christian gospel cut across all these social groups, which could create some tensions. In one worship space, rich benefactors, middle-class merchants, poor freemen, and indeed slaves, all gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, 1-2, it appears that slaves in the Ephesian congregation are starting to 
scorn or look down upon their masters on account of their masters being Christians. We can only guess at the exact nature of the tensions involved, but it stands to reason that the Christian slaves thought they should stand on more equal footing with their masters outside the church as well. As in chapter 2, when we discussed the role of women in the church, so here it appears that Paul is reinforcing the social order rather than trying to dismantle it. One thing to keep in mind is that Paul is trying to help Timothy hold this particular community together. Internal division, fueled by false teaching, is threatening to tear this church apart. Outside the church, persecution looms over the horizon, bringing the church into disrepute in the midst of the broader society around it, menace the long-term survival of the community as well. If the group looks too subversive, they could end up looking like what in the 1950s would have been a group perhaps accused of communism. They're a threat to society. So Paul is trying to you know, demonstrate that they are not such a threat. From a moral point of view today, I am not saying that it was therefore just fine for Paul to tell slaves to obey their masters, nor am I giving him a pass on remaining silent on the master's obligations toward their slaves. If this teaching does not sit well um, on the surface of it, I would agree. Um, it does not sit well with me either. And in fact, some of the earliest interpreters of scripture who are known today as the church fathers often cherished the opportunity to figure out what might God be saying through these most difficult parts of scripture. They knew that because the source and subject of scripture is God, their meaning is inexhaustible. And because our language and our minds are limited, but God is limitless, the deepest truths about him had to be revealed in figures and symbols that our minds could grasp. Thus, the church fathers believed that the difficult parts of the Bible must be there specifically to communicate something deeper, some spiritual truth. Their watchword was 2 Corinthians 3.6, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter of scripture, the surface level meaning, could be a stumbling block and could even be misleading if the reader were to stop there in their understanding of God and his acts of salvation. And so the church fathers would look for clues for the spiritual meaning of the church's sacred writings. The biggest clue to scripture speaking in a figural sense is anything said there that is unworthy of God. Contrary to modern sensibilities, according to which reading the Bible literally is the only way to take it seriously and respect it, for the church fathers, it was violating God's intent to read a passage according to the letter if it suggested anything unworthy of him. This spiritual meaning was viewed not as a foreign imposition on the text, reading into it whatever they wanted, it is both a spiritual and intellectual discipline that can be learned. If one knew the scriptures really well, I mean really well, and therefore knew God and his son Jesus Christ really well, and above all, if one progressed in holiness, then one could begin to see the spirit of the text beyond its letter. Back to 1 Timothy 6. What are the clues that should spur us on to investigate the deeper truth 
God is revealing to us in verses 1 through 2. The first clue is the one we've already mentioned. It is the very moral difficulty we may be feeling when Paul tells slaves to obey their masters without qualification. That unease should be embraced and not suppressed. We know from other parts of Scripture, Paul, not least of all, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male and female. That is God's plan for his whole creation. Perhaps even more importantly, Jesus himself cited Isaiah 61 as a sort of mission statement for his entire public ministry. He declared, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if one were to read the rest of the New Testament, except for 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, and perhaps a couple other verses here and there, they would walk away with the distinct impression that slavery is not only inconsistent with the gospel, it is, in fact, repugnant to it. Something else must be going on here. The second, more concrete clue lies in verse 2. In the Greek word that Paul uses to represent the service slaves render their masters, in the NRSV, it reads, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. The words by their service is far too generic a translation as the Greek term euergesia is quite jarring in this context. It is the exact term to describe the benefaction the male head of a household, the paterfamilias, gives to those subordinate to him. Indeed, it is a word one would use in reference to the benefits the wealthiest citizens of a city would bestow on citizens of lower rank. The expected response to such largesse is deference and honor from those inferiors. Thus, in 1 Timothy 6.2, Paul claims that slaves are, in fact, the benefactors and their masters the recipients of their generosity. Thus, Paul's language here subverts the relationship between master and slave. Slaves are, in the logic of the gospel, in every way above their masters in the kingdom of God, and it is the so-called masters in the kingdoms of this world who ought to show deference and honor to them. This is, of course, exactly what Jesus taught, all the way down to the same root word. Here is what the Lord says in Luke 22, verses 24 to 30. A dispute also arose among his disciples as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This, by the way, is immediately after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So, <laughs> funny enough. But he, but he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, you are getai. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, just as my Father has conferred on me, a kingdom 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. As you can see, Jesus himself makes reference to the Roman social hierarchy that colored every relationship in that place and time. He says, you are jockeying for my favor as your patron so that I might promote my most devoted servant above the others and give him special privileges. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. The greatest must become the least. The one who would lead must instead serve. I came not as a patron to be served, but rather as one who serves. So it must be with you. Listen, he says, none of you have anything to worry about. You have stood by me in my trials. My sufferings are your sufferings. You have stood by me at my lowest. And because you have stood by my side at the bottom of this world's social ladder, you will sit on thrones as judges in the kingdom of God. We have now arrived at the spirit that lies beyond the letter of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6. Slavery as an institution stands in fundamental contradiction to the kingdom of God. Perhaps the institution was so woven into the fabric of Roman society and the church's political power non-existent that bringing an end to it was simply not on the radar of Paul's moral imagination. But the truth remains that the good news of God's kingdom, though freely offered to all, is especially good news for the oppressed. The servant, the slave, stands above the master in this kingdom. Self-denying service and not power or largesse lies at the heart of true benefaction. Indeed, according to Jesus and Paul, the king of this kingdom took on the form of a slave and humbled himself even unto death on a cross. And therefore, Paul himself writes in Philippians 2, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the same token, those who wield power in this world should therefore watch out. Like the other prophets, the prophet Malachi in our reading this morning gave this dire warning to the oppressor. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day comes that shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, it would have been nice to hear that prophetic warning from Paul, but that's okay. That's why we have the whole Bible. Malachi has it covered. I would like to conclude by noting how this gospel has played out in history. In our day, as in Paul's, and in the many centuries in between, the message that Jesus is Lord and is ushering in a new kingdom has appealed to rich and poor alike, the upstanding pillars of the community, as well as its outcasts. But it would be appropriate now to reflect on where each of us stands in our American social hierarchy. Rest assured, I will spare you any commentary on that particular issue. Right now, anyway. <laughs> but if you cherish the hope of Christ's coming to bring his kingdom in its fullness, think about how best to align yourself now with the kingdom way of doing things. 
For those who are slaves and believe during the present age will one day be our judges. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent out your word to impress upon the hearts of all, rich and poor alike, slave and free, Jew and Greek, that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are all one, and that you have broken down the wall of division, separating all these groups. God, we pray that you would so align us with your kingdom that you are bringing to fruition every day, that when the time comes that your Son returns to bring it in its fullness, we will be found to have been good and faithful servants, not jockeying for, to control others, to oppress others, but rather to serve and stand with those who are oppressed. We thank you that you forgive us all those times that we have not stood there. We pray that you give us confidence in your Son and in him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.